0: I'm telling you an awful lot. I hope you're not recording this.
1: What's up, Doc?
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of What's Up, Doc. Today, Sailor Hannah and I are going to be talking to Dr. Harper. As you may have noticed, our little What's Up, Doc icon has changed. That's because... Our icon is now a picture of Dr. Harper holding a live, trapped, red-tailed hawk.
3: Listen for more information on that image. About What's the wingspan on those hawks? They look pretty big.
0: (laughs) Well, actually, the wingspan is about um, four, four and a half feet. And here's my wife holding one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this is a, a uh, young one that actually had been perched on top of this utility pole. And we have uh, put the trap out. Uh, this was the second one that we caught. And Jane had never held a red-tailed hawk. <laughs> so uh, you put a, it's, a, it's a wire cage with a live mouse in it. And you have fishing line nooses over it. And you put it along the side of the road um, away from the hawk. You drive down the road and turn around and then the hawk flies down and tries to get at the, the mouse, but it's protected in the double wire cage and it gets a toe or a foot caught in the nooses and it tries to fly and can't. And Gene, you drive up real fast and I jump out of the car and Gene told me to wait till the car stops before I get out. <laughs> and then you grab the hawk and then weigh it and measure it and process it. So.
2: so when you grab a feather from it, is it like a tail feather or something on its like breast, on the wings?
0: It's the, it's the first primary. The, 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 you go, it's 10 feathers from the, the outer, the primaries are numbered from the outer to the inner. So, and that is the feather that actually is molted on the breeding ground. So where the hawk reproduced last year or um, where the hawk was was born last year, or summered last year, if it's a juvenile. Mm. So, you take scissors and just a little snip and very, very minute part of the feather. We weigh it, we measure it, and photograph it, and then release it. Mm. So, great fun. Are they
1: fairly easy to get out of the trap, like once you Trap. I'm like, is it hard getting them? Because I know like they're big birds, and you got to try and get the well, noose done. And <laughs> that's
0: a very good point. Those these are fishing line nooses. So when they try to fly, I mean they're powerful birds, and some of the nooses are really tight around the toes or around the legs. So I have little forceps that I can sort of wiggle eventually underneath the the, the noose and loosen it, and then take it off. And you have to be very careful so that they have huge talons. And actually, I did have one that, that got me in two places. And um, I'm going to actually buy a cotter pen remover so I can pry talons out. Um, but hopefully that won't happen very often.
3: Then you wear gloves then or just bare hands?
0: <laughs> just bare hands because you you, ha- you need the dexterity to really oh, to yeah. remove the nooses and to yeah you need the, the dexterity.
2: It's interesting I would have assumed that like when you were holding them that they might like try to peck it or something with their beaks because I feel like a lot of birds kind of like do that same thing or is it like a flexibility issue where the bird like can't bend over itself like that or why does it do that?
0: <laughs> well so red-tailed hawks are are basically I mean the way that hawks and falcons and eagles and owls defend themselves is with their talons But falcons, like kestrels, um, are biters. And yeah, they are notorious biters. But red-tailed hawks don't. If you put your hand up near the the beak, certainly it would bite you. Um, Mm. But you you mainly have to to just watch the talons. Mm. Interesting. They weigh up to a little over three pounds. Some of the large ones do. The females are larger than males. So... A little backwards,
2: I guess, in the sense, but you just finished one research paper. How did you decide this was going to be your new project? Or has this been something that's been kind of like in the works
0: for a couple of years? So what, what really um, got me interested in birds was I saw a captive American kestrel when I was five years old. And it's a robin-sized falcon. Beautiful, beautiful birds. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And after that, I was fixated on birds. So the raptors are my first love. I I got a master's studying bald eagles. And then I supervised, um, uh, I was on a master's committee of a student at ISU. And he live trapped kestrels. And I showed him how to do that. And I thought, well, hmm. We can perhaps use a similar technique to, to answer to test the hypothesis about red-tailed hawks and so I, I decided to do that. so it it's you know, it's something I really look forward to so I'm only trapping in December, January and February because those are the the time that the, the birds are here wintering.
1: does that make it hard knowing three months to do it like is that make it a lot difficult?
0: It is, it, you know, so I mean, that, that limits the amount of time and you, you end up, you drive a lot and you see a lot of red-tailed hawks, but not all are you know, within easy trapping distance. I think the farthest one we've had was 150 yards away. And then the adults are wary in particular. So they will sometimes come over and above the trap and perch in a branch above it. And and the one that was 150 yards away flew in, flew in a tree above it, sort of flew down again and landed. Then it flew on the ground and lit beside it. And then it made the mistake of getting on the trap and it got a toe caught. And uh, mm. so, yes.
3: Do you mark the birds in any ways to know that you've analyzed that one already?
0: So if I, I do not, I did not apply for a banding permit. That was going to be a whole lot more um, red tape to get through because I, I have a federal and a state permit to do this. Oh, okay. And with the semester and COVID, I decided I'm not going to attempt that. So if I catch a bird, though, I mean, I, I, we cut the, the same feather from the same wing from the same mm-hmm. location, so I can tell. But, oh, okay. you know, uh, ordinarily, you, you would put a uh, an aluminum Fish and Wildlife Service band around their leg to indicate that. But I, you know, even if you saw the bird again, if they're perched in the winter, they, they, they puff out their feathers and you don't see their feet necessarily. You wouldn't know it till you caught them anyway. Oh, okay. I did catch a Cooper's hawk inadvertently. Uh, <laughs> which was Actually, it was neat, it was a a gorgeous bird. Um, And then uh, I've had kestrels to come over the trap and hover above it, but I I pulled the trap because there was a red-tailed hawk nearby. And if the kestrel is caught and trying to get away, I suspect the red tail would come down and kill the kestrel easily. So I didn't want that to happen. And then, Gene, we were driving along and we saw a bird in a tree and we kept getting closer and I was getting excited. He was an immature bald eagle and a red-tailed hawk was perched in the same tree and eagles are huge. And, oh, you don't want to catch an eagle.
2: Un-American.
0: <laughs> un But I mean, they're big, they're powerful birds. Plus you, I mean, they're, you need a special permit to trap those and they could potentially, I have a four and a half pound brick attached to the trap to weight it down and they could potentially fly with that. I don't want that to happen.
2: So once you've trapped them, you've got the feathers, you send them for, you said, hydrogen ion?
0: the Isotope analysis.
2: Isotope analysis. So then once you've done that, what's the next step in the process?
0: So what we'll have to do is basically, Separate for adults versus juveniles. It takes a, a, a red-tail hawk two years to become an adult. We'll have to um, get some birds from feathers from birds from known locations and do calibration curves. You have to calibrate the deuterium to protium ratio in the feathers to that in rainfall. Because the the um, so so the tropics are the source of, of of much actually water vapor, and as that water vapor so that contains both deuterium and protium, the protium is deposited. Protium typically falls out first; it's heavier, and then I'm sorry, the deuterium falls out first; it's heavier, and then the protium, and it's it's deposited in a latitudinal gradient and once we're able to to do the calibrations we can construct uh an a map that will show us the approximate latitude from which that bird originated
3: so is the ratio of the two isotopes from the bird feather similar to that at the rainfall is that high okay mm-hmm.
0: and it 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 works its way up through the food chain
3: that's really interesting
0: so uh, so are you
2: just going to look at um like this winter season, or are you going to do the trapping again next winter as well?
0: It depends. Uh, the difficulty now with that, uh, um, you you really, I mean, the feathers are going to be molted. So I wouldn't know if I'd trap the bird before or not next year. We still may do it, may and in, in different areas, it depends on how many birds we get this year. We you know, I'd, I'd, I wanted to get birds from Northern Illinois, Central Illinois, and Southern Illinois, and enough to be able to, to um, and adults and immatures from each, and I'd need probably 10 to 12 um, adults, 10 to 12 immatures from each of those regions. I think we potentially could get adults, but immatures, only, there's a high mortality rate Um, And, you know, so there are fewer immatures anyway, fewer juveniles. So we'll see. I I also uh, have um, probably 15 specimens in the freezer at Illinois State that I can use that people had had found and brought in dead. Um, And I may be able to get some feathers from museum study skins, such as the Field Museum, but they, it's called destructive sampling, you know, when you take that little feather sample, it's the, the sample itself, I mean, is, is destroyed. So they're, they're somewhat loath to do that.
2: So are you still gonna take from like Southern, Northern and Central Illinois?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're in, in part, we're going to Southern Illinois, we're going to Hawk Trap, and then we're also going to hike while we're down there why not i'm on sabbatical <laughs> you have to do that
2: mm. it was a good was a good semester to take sabbatical
3: that is true yeah very true
0: <laughs> so are all of your classes going to be online or
1: Ah, uh, i don't think so we have two online
0: okay we we have two online
1: or at least i do i don't know about you
2: well and then... i have one online i think
1: i'm then... sure i have one online I know we all have one that's fully in person. Is that biochem? Yeah, it's biochem. And then how,
0: they- did, how did biochem go last semester?
3: It was in a concert hall or the lecture was. <laughs> yeah, we were impressed.
0: Uh, right? wow. We
3: had to reschedule
2: all of our exams to a completely different day so that way we would have a physical like table to work on instead of like taking quizzes on the tiny little like Arm rest.
1: <laughs> had to wear a microphone so, like, we all could hear him because, like, it goes pretty far. And even sometimes that didn't work.
2: And the Wi-Fi went out at 9.15 on the dot, oh, the dot. About oh. a month and a half.
1: Yeah. And then for labs, we had to stagger it where we were broken into two groups and you were only there for two hours. So you had to try and get everything done within the shortened amount of time.
2: Yeah. And, like, we weren't supposed to have lab partners, but it, how does it happen <laughs> so like it, you kind of worked in like groups of like two or three and tried to distance as well as possible
0: sure. yeah
1: because like if someone just got all the materials it made it go so much faster
3: sure mm-hmm. so
0: well hopefully this will be our last semester uh in this mode we'll see You know, I'm hopeful with the vaccine coming out. I think it'll be a while before everybody gets it, but um, that's heartening. Yeah. So yeah, I had my both my classes were in person, and I had some students, you know, permanently at home, and um, you just you just make the best out of it. That's sort of we're all in this together.
2: (laughs) Classes? Were you teaching last semester?
0: I taught Principles of Ecology and Conservation Biology and Restoration Ecology.
2: And then so this year, or this semester, you're obviously not teaching anything. Do you know what you're teaching for Fall 2021?
0: I am actually going to teach some courses I haven't taught in a long time. Ooh, that's I'm okay. going to teach, potentially, I have talked to Lonnie about this, but Behavioral Ecology, which to me is, is Fascinating. It's you know sort of a, a, a um, animal behavior from an evolutionary perspective and how that relates to their 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 ecology. Um, and then I haven't taught experimental ecology for a while, and and there's no lecture there. It's basically students reading papers and then actually devising a a, a study. With my assistants performing the study and then presenting the results. So it's more sort of a seminar oriented. It's sort of a, a grad school type class.
3: So is principles oh, of ecology so more lecture style.
0: Um, it, 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 it's yeah lecture um, and lab and, and for lab this past year. It was, I had to do, we couldn't, I, I couldn't transport students. So normally we'd go to different locations. So I had students to try to come up with ways to quantify leaf senescence in trees. And um, yeah, actually some of them came up with some pretty creative ways. Uh, for restoration ecology, I uh, conservation biology, I had pairs of students to adopt a park and to conduct a an inventory, an organism inventory in the park, and then come up with a management plan to how to convert some of the park back to a natural biome. And then we did actually, so Ewing Park was within walking distance and we went there four or five weeks and cut and sprayed honeysuckle, put up a screech owl nest box. Um, There's a screech owl in it now, which is neat. And yeah, so, we made the best out of that, too.
1: Do you have a favorite class to teach at Wesleyan?
0: Um, probably field ornithology. So that's where we were out in the field every day, practically every day. And uh, we go, I take students camping in southern Illinois in the Shawnee. We go to a um, Catholic youth camp before the children arrive and we stay um, in tree houses. So these are basically, they're recited buildings with roof over your head. The front is completely open and it overlooks a lake and it's just gorgeous. And if it rains, you know, you've got a roof over your head and there are bunks in there and I have students bring mosquito netting and um, it's, it's fun. Is that a
3: May term or summer course?
0: That's May term.
3: Okay.
0: It's May term.
3: I know that was offered our first year.
2: Is that going to be offered again our senior year?
0: Yes. That's my intent. Again, I've got to talk to Lonnie, but um, that's that's basically the intent. And and it's to, you know, May term should be different to me. It, to me. It's sort of during a regular semester, you can't get out all the time. You don't, you, you're in class 50 minutes and you can't do that. But um, for May term, yeah. So, and, and that's also the time, the, the spring, uh, of spring migration. And oh, the warblers and other birds are, the males are in their breeding plumage, it is exquisite. It really is. So. Is
2: there a class that you wish that you, like, if this is your dream class that you would love to teach at Wesleyan, but you've, like, never had the opportunity to do? Um,
0: you know, I've, I've, I guess it would, yeah, it would be wonderful to take, actually, students to the Amazon. I've taken students to Costa Rica 10 times, uh, 10 May term courses. But, and i 've been to the Amazon once, and oh my goodness, um, but you know i don't I, I would need well logistically it would be difficult but I one I, I got to go on a, 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 a one of the study abroad providers brought faculty down it's IES and they have study abroad in Ecuador, so we went to the Amazon and the Galapagos mm. Wow. I mean that it's just unlike yeah, anything I, you know I've seen. It was just amazing.
3: You ever go to national parks to look for birds or conduct studies?
0: Um, you know, not not to to conduct uh, studies, but yeah, we've been to a lot of national parks. We our daughter and son in law live in Montana now, and they were married out, just right outside of Glacier. Oh and wow. Actually, we went hiking in Glacier. We went up, we hiked five miles to Iceberg Lake. And there were literally, there's ice in the lake. And my son and my son-in-law and several of their friends dove in, swam. Made made an ice angel, swam back. I waded in up to my knees and it it was cold. It burned. So... um, yeah, but the West. Oh, the West is really just grandeur. I mean, and the wildlife. So, um, a couple of winters ago, three winters ago now, I guess we went to Yellowstone, and we saw thirteen wolves. So that was that was pretty amazing too. So I want to get students out and about, and that's that's what I. I want to introduce students to the natural world because it's it's pretty amazing. Did you
3: do similar research when you were in college or getting your PhD?
0: You know, when I was an undergraduate, I didn't have an opportunity to conduct research. So for a master's, I I studied bald eagles and then did a lot of, um, did grant work on proposed highway routes and did bird and mammal surveys and I did eagle surveys and we would rent, have a pilot and rent a small plane and I would count eagles up and down the river in that small plane um, and then for my doctorate I studied house wrens which are you know, about 10 to 12 grams I mean they're tiny birds but they oh. readily accept nest boxes and you can, you can do a lot of experimental manipulations with them I mean, there's in in them. So there were over 800 nest boxes we had, and you'd have to check them all twice a week, and then you'd find out where the nests are, and you could remove eggs, add eggs. I actually moved chicks from nest to nest, and uh, it, it was it was actually also pretty amazing. When so you were. All- at- no, go ahead.
1: Oh, when you were an undergrad, did you know what you wanted to do or did you kind of have a roundabout path to figure it out?
0: I knew what I wanted to do. And I actually um, had a, a picture of a goshawk right above my desk <laughs> that sometimes when I was having difficulty in some classes and so forth and learning how to study, I would always look up at that picture. And so this is also where I met my wife, Jean, when we were undergrads. And when we first started dating, we were talking to each other and we'd stay up late at night and and in the lobby of of the residence hall talking. And, and, you know, I said, about me, I said, well, you know, I like birds. And she said, oh, I know. And I said, (laughs) I really like birds. And she sort of found out. So, um, but I, I knew, yes, I, I I knew I wanted to, to be an ornithologist. And I even knew that probably from early middle school. So it was just something I was, I was really passionate about. And fortunately too, I had some mentors came, I grew up in a small town in Kentucky. And I don't know if you've read anything by Barbara Kingsolver. So her parents Barbara Kingsolver is, a, is an uh, off uh, best-selling author. She wrote uh, "Animal Dreams," Bean Trees," "Poison Wood Bible." Um, but her I grew up in the same hometown, and her parents were my close mentors, and they would take me out birding. And some of my fondest memories are going out to their farm and, and them introducing me to this whole new world, both birds and plants. And then also it was so touching to see them. I mean, they were so in love. So we, we would go out and, you know, you'd see a new, new species for the year. And they would always kiss. And that, that was just, to me, that was pretty amazing. So, Jenny and Wendell King's Oliver. Wendell is still, a, still living. He's, he was a physician. Uh, he's, he took his family, including Barbara when she was young, on a medical mission to the Congo and were there for two years. And uh, even though I think Barbara was four, she remembered some of that. And, and I think some of the Poisonwood Bible uh, originated from, from her experiences, but... So, so did you,
2: when you knew that or anthology was the thing, did you think that it was going to be inside academia that you were doing it in or were you thinking like, oh, I'll work at a museum or I'll work here, there. Did you know that like academics is also a road that you wanted to go down?
0: I, you know, when I first... Um, I mean, I, I loved being out looking at, at birds. And I, I really, you know, initially was naive. I, you know, I, I really didn't quite know, know what it was about. But then uh, learned about graduate school. And, um, and, then to, and then I had the opportunity to, to teach a class after I finished my master's degree. I taught an anatomy and physiology lab. And I really enjoyed it. And then I got the opportunity to teach the actual lecture part as well, and I loved it. And then after that, I, I knew what I wanted to do. So.
1: How did you end up at Illinois Wesleyan or did you do anything before you started teaching there?
0: So I actually got my doctorate at Illinois State with Charlie Thompson, uh, you know, Dr. Sukup, also got her doctorate with Charlie Thompson at Illinois State. Um, And my predecessor at Illinois Wesleyan, Lou Verner, went on a year sabbatical. So I got applied for and got that sabbatical replacement position. And I I loved Illinois Wesleyan, and actually that was my dream to, to teach there. And then he came back, he was gone a year, I took a sabbatical replacement at Bradley for a year. There was also a position that opened there, but I, I preferred Illinois Wesleyan, and then my predecessor left and the university, and then I came back and got the tenure-track position. So I've been at Illinois Wesleyan now close to 30 years, which is hard to believe.
3: Compared to your undergrad, is Wesleyan small or... I guess, is it comparable in size or much smaller?
0: So I went to Transylvanian University. So that's a small liberal arts school in Lexington, Kentucky. And um, it was, at the time, Gene I, I, and I attended there, it was maybe 900 or 1,000 students, so it was small. Um, but I, I enjoy. I really enjoyed my experiences at Transylvania, and I had a mentor there who was an ornithologist, and um, I took an ornithology class with him and and went camping and loved it, and so.
2: And did you form your own club, or were there like things outside of uh, like studying that you did, or was it just hitting the books to be who you are now?
0: Um, no, Well, I came, I was so at, at Transylvania, the Greeks were um, really big, um, but fraternities, um, I was uh, just, I wasn't interested in that. I mean, fraternities and sororities, I mean, that's, that's fine if, if that's what for, you know, what, what people like. It just, it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. I was an RA on a fraternity floor the first non-fraternity RA on the floor. They didn't have their houses. They had floors. Oh, and I I could literally sleep through a fire alarm. They had to pound on my door, and the the, the horn was right outside my door. That sounds crazy.
1: Yeah, like, I can only imagine, like, what you would have had to go through on that
2: floor. So, Sailor's an RA, and, so. and then I'm in Gulick. <laughs> and, I mean first in themselves are crazy but i can't even imagine a non-fraternity member on a fraternity floor like that sounds like
0: (laughs) (laughs) no the the phi kappa Tau's and and then and then the fraternity floor above ours with with the kappa (laughs) alphas
3: i think we had a speaker i guess it was maybe last year, she was a volunteer from a birding society in Chicago. Yes, Yes. Putting the dots on, I guess, lack of a better word, dots on all the skyscrapers. Have you ever been a part of something like that?
0: So yes, we actually, um, I had a couple of students who collected, uh, window kills at four buildings on the Illinois Wesleyan campus. And even though we have a small campus, um, I believe there were during, and, and this happens, you know, during migration. So, um, probably from early September through mid-October, they collected 28 birds. So, they, when the birds migrate, they, they, they migrate at night, and they then feed... In the morning and the afternoon to get fuel for their next stage of their migration, but in in they see the reflection of either the sky or trees and vegetation in the windows and then attempt to fly. Into they mistake those and then fly into the windows and are killed. So um, that also uh, occurs at Wesleyan too. The window kills. I say, has
1: there been any? like have people come up with ways to help prevent that or like try to adjust windows or anything that we can do
0: so there's there are now actually um, sort of bird-friendly glass so you can you you can actually uh, put put um, uh, designs that are that are difficult for people to see but birds can see UV light and so they, birds can see that, that basically that, you know, there's an object there and they don't attempt to fly through it. It's harder to retrofit um, glass on buildings. Um, I mean, you, it would be prohibitively expensive to replace a window. But, the, but there are some things that, that you can actually put, put on windows um, that will somewhat accomplish the same thing.
3: I was going to ask, would something like a sticky note, if someone put that in the center of a large window, would that be enough to deter the bird, or does it need to be all over the window?
0: Depends on how large the window is. If it's a real large window, you know, it, it may deter them from flying to that section, but mm-hmm. they they would still see reflection elsewhere, so you, you, you need it mm-hmm. over a larger area uh, of the glass.
2: I don't remember what the distance was, but I think in that um, talk, it was like a certain square foot area. And then like every so often they put like just a dot and then that would deter them from that area because if they see anything in, so what of a radius, then they know not to fly into that. So you have to have it like every so often so that they're recognizing it at every position that something's there.
0: So there's, um, uh very small window on the west side of the CNS and you know the window is probably two feet by two feet and I am surprised every year I find dead birds beneath it. Mm -hmm. You know this this basically you know this this building of brick and you've got this small window and you know what what attracts birds to try to fly to you know through that I, I I don't know but I'm just real surprised even such a, a a small window and there's you have birds killed every year.
2: I expected it to be the greenhouse is what most would have fly into because I mean you look inside and it's still trees and such.
0: Yeah State Farm Hall is is big. Um, let's see the art building is also um, big uh some actually uh, with Ames library um, Buck had had um, some birds but but perhaps fewer than others. so they they spent they they actually put chicken wire over grates beneath windows because oftentimes if a bird is killed it'll fall down into you know into that's it's base into the area below the grate. So they, um, they put, got permission and put chicken wire over those, and um, uh, that allowed them to collect the birds.
3: If the birds aren't killed, are you or the students able to nurse the bird back to health, or are they almost always dead?
0: Um, if Sometimes they're stunned, and I simply... Put them in a box, a, a cardboard box, closed box, and it's quiet, and they can recover. And if they can fly, release them. Uh, for some, I've taken them to um, the a wildlife rehabilitator or Dr. Matt Fraker, who's the vet at town um, at at actually it's uh, at his vet clinic. Um, and then some of the others I would often take to the ones that were dead. I would freeze, take measurements and, and, and determine the, the, the color of, of the feet and the eyes and so forth and weigh them and then take them to the colleague at uh, Illinois State University for their museum. Mm-hmm. They would make study skins from them.
1: As a university, have we, done anything to help um, decrease the amount of birds that have gotten killed, or is it more of just been collecting data?
0: You know, it's it's more sort of collecting data. Um, so, uh, actually, too, I guess they, they, what I could also, it's the American Bird Conservancy. They have some, some, some suggestions, so I can perhaps look into that and perhaps some of, for some of the smaller problem windows could see if I could um, uh, come up with something. Certainly for that small window on the CNS, that would be real easy to do. Mm-hmm.
2: So. so taking a little bit of a 90 degree angle into a different conversation, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about, I know that you and Dr. Wilson just published your paper And could you walk us through like that whole process of from, because I feel like as us, as students, sometimes we get to help with like the research part of it or the, maybe even like coming up with an idea, but we don't ever get to, at least in our four years, normally walk through the entire publication process. I was wondering if you could walk us through like how that uh, paper came to be.
0: Okay. So I um, have, Published papers uh, in the past on uh, in toxicology, we looked uh, at pesticides in in birds, and also uh, we we looked at documented heavy metals uh, in wolves. So I collaborated with uh, other people and and with a chemist uh, Jeff Frick, who's no longer at Illinois Wesleyan, was one of our collaborators, but. Um, I'm a deer hunter, and I um, had read papers about lead contamination in venison from uh, hunters who used lead bullets and rifles. But in Illinois, um, rifles are not permitted for deer hunting. You can only use shotguns or muzzle loaders, and actually, you can also use pistols, uh, which I I would would not want to use a pistol in terms of uh, less accuracy. But anyway, so I was just curious, well, you know, could there be lead in ground venison from shotgun slugs? So I worked, I had uh, a student working on the project and worked with Dr. Pereira, and these, we, we got some, some ground venison packets and uh, we X-rayed them and, and found what appeared to be metal fragments. Um, but boy, trying to uh, locate, trying to, to you know, find those, the metal fragments are small, minute, and trying to find those was so difficult um, Dr, Dr. Wilson then came to Illinois Wesleyan and his area of expertise is toxicology. So we collaborated and um, we finally arrived at a, at a solution to, to x-ray some, um, the ground venison packets to, 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 we knew the approximate location of these fragments We partially thawed them and actually took a steel knife and just cut thin slices of where we thought the fragments would be. We x-rayed those slices again. And then we determined uh, the location, uh, approximate location of the metal fragments. And then we had those uh, submitted, we sent those to a lab in Idaho for analysis. And actually of the seven samples that we sent, all came back with all uh, high levels of lead. So um, we worked on the, the manuscript, um, and I, I was in Barcelona with students and I, I worked on it and we submitted the manuscript. And as, as with most uh, papers that were um, submitted, you have to revise it. And so we did a, a, a major revision of that manuscript. And then it was, we were pleased to learn this past August that it was accepted for publication. And uh, it was actually then published uh, at the end of August. So it was a very lengthy uh, process. Um, One, uh, Jenny Alexander is an alum, environmental studies alum, and she's a co-author on the paper, and Dr. Pereira, uh, Dr. Matt Fraker, who who actually x-rayed the packets for us, Um, and it was a a nice collaborative endeavor.
3: I'm to finish about how long did it take, like through the whole process.
0: Well, so this project actually was initiated several years ago, so initially in 2013. Oh, wow. And Jenny Alexander worked on it in her senior year. She then graduated. Um, I got more venison packets, and I got venison packets from archery um, killed deer as well, and then um, x-rayed those. and. so, you know, from 2013, and it was published in 2020, that was, this is actually, uh, so So I, we sort of put it as, I put it aside for periods of time and worked on other projects, and then would come back to it, and uh, finally, this, it, it came to fruition. So this, this took quite a bit of time to do. <laughs>
2: So then I know you said that you had to send the samples to a lab in Idaho and then previously when we talked about uh, your current project, you would have to send samples or the bird feathers. Is that something where if you worked at like a larger institution that you'd be able to do that kind of stuff there or um, is it just because of the nature of what you're isolating that you need to send it somewhere else?
0: Yeah, so we we also found this actually with our pesticide work Uh, We had a, 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 um, uh, you know, a GC with electron capture detector, and we actually got an NSF grant to to have one at Illinois Wesleyan, and that would allow us to detect organochlorine pesticides. Hmm. But, you know, what we found is that with really the sophisticated equipment, it needs to be used frequently. It's not uh, necessarily good to to use it and then not use it for a period of time because things things eventually um, will will break down and so it's just for these we we did not have the big instrumentation um, to, to analyze uh, the, the venison samples for lead and um, we don't have the instrumentation to, to analyze the feathers for the, the hydrogen isotope analysis. So it's just, it's uh, better to, to simply pay and have the samples sent and, and analyzed by a reputable lab.
3: How, did the x-ray? Oh, go ahead, Sailor. I was just gonna say, how is
1: did the writing process go with multiple pe- people working on the project? Did it make it a little bit more difficult than if it was just solo?
0: Um, actually, so so having multiple co authors, it no, that's it's nice because they will catch things or have different perspectives than if you were just writing it by yourself. Um what, what's interesting, though, sometimes, is when you submit a manuscript, um, the manuscript, the editor of the journal will, will look at the manuscript and see if it's suitable for publication in that journal. And if so, the editor will send it out to typically um, two or three referees. They will read the manuscript. And sometimes, though, it's interesting that you know, you'll, get, you'll get polar opposite comments mm. On, on the same topic and you have to you have to respond to all the co- all of the, the comments of the reviewers you have to address them or say why you're not addressing them and um, yeah, sometimes that can be a bit challenging but but I think having the, the multiple uh, co-authors a lot of most of my papers actually have been published um, that way and I, I, have, I have students as, as co-authors so, on the, um, uh, actually, we're um, conducting another study, the Urban Breeding Bird Survey with uh, Rachel Schoenaker. She's uh, a biology alum who graduated a year ago, a year and a half ago. And then Leah Beinick who's uh, a senior environmental studies major. And, So, we're in the process now. We've conducted two years of of a breeding bird survey in Bloomington Normal and we're comparing our results with USGS, uh, US Geological uh, Survey. uh, They have breeding bird surveys in rural areas all across the uh, US, Canada and some in Mexico. So we're comparing our results for, for urban birds with the rural areas in central Illinois. Mm. And we're in the process now of, um, actually they've written some drafts of the introduction and methods. We're in the process of analyzing data. Um, we're going to present a, a poster or a paper at uh, a meeting of the American Ornithological Society that will be held virtually this year. And then we'll submit a a manuscript for uh, publication. And they're gonna be first authors on the paper, but we go over many, many, many drafts. And I tell them that certainly by the end of the manuscript, they will be, um, you, you go over it ad nauseum. And it's somewhat the same way you do, you know, with a master's thesis or a doctoral dissertation. By the time you're finished with it, you're you're ready to be finished, but you've you've really gone over it with in in fine detail.
2: I can think about how hard it would be when you're hearing comments from people when they're like reading it and you're sitting here like,
0: You're you're critiquing my
2: baby. I've worked so much time on this and you're picking apart the little things and it's probably difficult but also yeah. needed because it's like another eye is always needed when you've been invested in a project for so long.
0: But it you know but this is the beauty of, of a scientific paper that they also though can bring in perspective you know perspective something that perhaps you and your collaborators have completely overlooked. Um, so you, you you can't take it personally. Although sometimes some of the comments, you wonder, did you really read this? But <laughs> you you simply address it to the editor that that you disagree with this comment that that that, and you you know you state your reasons, your rationale for for disagreeing. Mm-hmm. But you no, know, this is the beauty of the scientific endeavor.
2: Mm-hmm. So I know, like when. I or sometimes even when Sailor writes papers, we're like, we've looked over this so many times. Can you read it? And it's like you let your colleagues read things. Is that something that you normally do is let other biology faculty read and critique um and think about things with you before you send it to a publisher?
0: Yes. Yes. And yeah, so um we we do send it to, you know, to I do send it to other colleagues and and one colleague in particular, he he's 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 really good, and and um, so you also have to, you know, you can't take things personally. And this is what I tell students when I actually edit drafts of papers they submit. You can't take writing personally. This is the way you learn how to write. You go through multiple iterations, and um, you you you. Learn you you. This is the way you learn, sort of, you know, from your mistakes, and you can perhaps uh, agree with with you know some suggestions that might make the manuscript better, or you can you can disagree and you know state your rationale.
3: You had mentioned earlier that you have to have a special certification to be able to collect birds. Do students and other collaborators on the paper also have to have that certification?
0: So uh, for the for the live trapping red-tailed hawks, um, I had had written the permit applications such that um, the students would would never be alone. I would always be Mm -hmm. with students or actually I have a collaborator, uh, Illinois State, Dr. Angelo Caparella, and and either he or I would would be with the students. but that was also uh, sort of a, a arduous pr- process in a sense because you have to write the, the you have to to answer a lot of questions and and it's important though it's it's vital and and to you know to state you know the, the why the purpose of what you're doing the the scientific reasoning behind it and also to show that you have sufficient expertise so that you can go out and not injure the birds with which you're working. So, but both students are covered uh, under my permits.
2: I'm thinking back to when you said all of the things about like when you were getting your PhD, you worked a lot with like eagles, and you said again, working with the eagles. Is that, I'm thinking in my timeline, where is that in the whole Rachel Carson Silent Springs a eagle egg thing?
0: Yeah. So um you know Rachel Carson's Silent Spring um was published in the early 60s i believe in 19 either 62 or 63 at that time the population of bald eagles our national symbol in the United States at one time it it in the 48 contiguous states it was down to 417 pairs of eagles and you know it, at that time in the 1960s i mean there was real concern that our national symbol was going to go extinct mm-hmm. so i started um a masters degree studying bald eagles in 1980 and eagle the eagle population was still in the in the contiguous 48 states was still relatively low So there was uh, a lot of concern today. The the eagle population in in Illinois and and throughout, actually, the United States has just rebounded. It's pretty amazing. Um, There's actually a bald eagle nest within the city limits of Bloomington. And you can over, you know, in town in the winter, you can look up and you can see bald eagles flying right over town. They're, they're coming into town, I think, to hunt squirrels and rabbits, and also they'll feed on roadkill. So um, it's a real success story. I, I also um, do winter raptor surveys. So I've been doing one with a colleague at Illinois State for over 20 years and we we just did one yesterday in southern McLean County, and our close to our it's a 50 mile route, and close to our ending spot, we we got out and we're looking for hawks, and we looked over, and I looked and said, "Oh, there's an eagle nest." So it's a newly constructed nest, and a bald eagle was standing on that nest in an area in in along um, the Middle Fork of Sugar Creek out out near oh. Stanford, and. We were just, wow, we were so excited.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But that's, this is a, a real environmental success story.
3: I was surprised. I actually saw one probably a few weeks ago just in Morton. I know a lot fly by the Illinois River, but I was excited to be able to see one in Morton miles within my house.
0: Yeah, they... Uh, it was fun. No, go ahead.
3: Oh, I would say it was fun living like right
2: on the Mississippi River. It's, we would always watch those like live streams in elementary school, of like the eagles nest and waiting for the like eggs to hatch and all of this. And it was like always the place that they were video streaming from was like, oh, I know where that is. That's like 15 minutes away, or, like 45 minutes away. And it's kind of fun to just like be on them because you see so many like flying by and such.
0: Yeah, the Mississippi River, that's a major wintering area. So you get the northern eagles, the eagles that nest up north in uh, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, and Canada, that will come down and and winter uh, along the open water of the Mississippi River. And they feed primarily on, (coughs) excuse me, dead or dying uh, gizzard shad, typically below locks and dams, uh, the there's winter kill and then the fish can be stunned as they go through um, the dam or killed. And so they, they feed heavily on those um, fish. And during a real severe cold winter, why the, the ice on the river forms and it's, it's the only open waters right beneath the dam and you can see hundreds of eagles beneath it. Uh, for example, Lock and Dam 19 Uh, near Keokuk, Iowa, and it's, it's a pretty impressive site.
1: Okay, so I think we're going to move on to our next section of the podcast, which is a fun little thing that we like to do called the rapid fire section, where we have a bunch of questions and then we'll just kind of rotate through and then ask them to you and you just kind of say what comes to mind. What's your favorite bird?
0: Peregrine falcon.
3: Favorite professor?
0: Uh, My mentor, Dr. J. Hill Hammond, who was at Transylvania University.
3: Favorite
2: novel that you've read? Uh,
0: Let's see. Well, actually, uh, perhaps the Poisonwood Bible.
1: Favorite thing to cook?
0: Favorite thing to cook: ramen noodles. No. <laughs> My wife cooks; I clean.
3: Okay. <laughs> I really
2: well, nice. <laughs> we have to ask: vacuuming or sleeping. Oh, yeah. Oh.
0: I I I I do the well. She's actually doing it now as we sleep. But I mean, both. I I I'm not much of a chef, so but I but I do actually I, I like to grill out. Um, uh, so, in terms of my favorite thing, perhaps to grill out would either be um, salmon or venison. And
3: what's I your do, favorite? I... Oh,
0: Sorry. what's your favorite food? Uh, let's see. Favorite food? Um, it would have to be um, spaghetti and meat. Are you, is it meatballs or is it like in meat sauce? No, it's meatballs. So Gene makes, uh, you know, homemade meatballs and oh, it's really good. We, we always have that Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve.
2: Mm-hmm. So then as a, as a deer hunter, do you do like venison meatballs or do you do like beef?
0: Actually, so we have greatly reduced our intake of beef. So, Gene, we buy uh, ground turkey and mm. make it from that. And, and you really, you know, especially with the tomato sauce, and we had uh, some of the tomato sauce made from tomatoes from our garden. And uh, you couldn't, I couldn't really tell the, the difference between beef and, and ground turkey.
2: What's your least favorite vegetable?
0: Uh cauliflower.
2: So now we have to ask this. Do you pronounce it cauliflower or cauliflower?
0: I've always called it cauliflower but
1: What's your glasses prescription?
0: Pretty high. Um actually uh yeah it's uh it's one of them is a minus 10 in one lens so I cannot see the big E on the eye chart without my glasses.
3: What is something on your bucket list that you want to accomplish by the end of 2021?
0: Um like to get our urban bird paper accepted for publication.
2: Are you a coffee or a tea kind of person?
0: Coffee. Do you put
2: sugar and cream in your coffee or just drink it black?
0: sugar and cream. Jean drinks hers black and we had to get a coffee maker that had a timer on it because she wants it the first thing in the morning. Or this when 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 we were first married and you know I would always get up early and turn the coffee maker on but now having the but having the timer works wonders.
1: It's great. What's your favorite owl box memory?
0: i um, watching the young fledge from the box. So the fledge means to leave the nest and the, the uh, young screech owls leave the nest before they can fly. And so uh, the box is about nine feet tall and these young just basically came out, bounced to the ground, crawled over up into a lilac bush and the parents were there with them. That was fun to watch.
2: We've been talking about when we were like sitting down as being now that we're in charge of the club, like what are we gonna do? And I kept trying to convince Sailor that we should put an owl box somewhere on campus and then live stream the uh, like a video camera in CNS. So then like when recruiter people come in and they're like, look, we even have owls that you can watch. And then everyone wants to come to Wesleyan and do biology, be an ornithologist because we're so cool.
1: I think that we could do that. We would have to figure out how to work it or like set it up.
0: So I have um, an Amazon Blink uh, security camera inside my box and it's, it's wireless. So you put two AA uh, lithium batteries and they, they last, they should last the winter. But um, with this, and you know, you can't watch it for an ex- extended periods. So you only take photographs or you watch you watch it for for short periods, but uh, so I'm. It's the first year I'm using it, and I've had a screech owl in the box the last few days. So <laughs> there's screech owls on campus. So actually, and the the key though would be to place the box in such a way to, to prevent squirrels from getting in the box. Because if they go in and make a nest, a leaf nest, um, the screech owls won't use it. But there are ways to do that. Actually,
3: I think we should do it, Sailor.
1: I, I, I said I was on board. <laughs> we just have to figure out all the logistics.
2: We'll treasure put put a request for funds <laughs> in <the> student senate.
3: <laughs> okay, we'll do.
0: No, there's. I can give you a link. There's. A, you can buy one of the boxes at um, from from Amazon and it, it's about $80 and it's it's really, it's a nice box. It's the s- same type box we put up in Ewing Park. There's screech owls on campus. You'd also need to talk to the administration to get permission, but I'm sure you could do that.
2: Yeah. I still think it'd be just really cool. I think it would, would be
1: cool. but I don't know. I'd also like worry about like, we would have to put in a good space where like no one could mess with it too.
0: Well, and, and two, so this, this blink security camera, you have to be within 100 feet of, mm-hmm. of you know, the, the receiver. Um, yeah, and, and to, to stream something, that would be, be a real big undertaking. I mean, to, you know, to live stream it. We've got you
2: know, a year and a half but, to figure it out. Yeah, I
1: was to <laughs> figure out the logistics. We could next year be yeah. a big project.
0: It's true. Well, actually, you, you know, you could potentially, the the winter, the, the owls really will start pairing up mid to late February. They'll nest March, April, May. I mean, you, you could potentially at least get permission to put out a box. And, and so the um, adults will often perch in the entrance and sunbathe. And so, mm-hmm. um, If you, you know, you put it out and and if screech owls nested in it this year, then you could put the video camera in it next year. You'd be, I think, more likely to to be guaranteed success.
3: Uh, What's your biggest fear?
0: Uh, Fear of heights.
2: That's kind of ironic in a way.
0: Yeah, I don't... um... I actually I mean, would, we had the screech owl box up in a maple tree, and I would it was about 12 or 13 feet, and I would climb up to the box a lot. I even one time unfortunately, climbed up after it had rained and the branches were wet and to chase squirrels out. And I, I fell, but I caught myself and caught branches under my arm so I didn't fall all the way, but I decided, mm, I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. What
2: that's kind of interesting a lot of people are like i want to fly like a bird and you're like like two feet on the ground
0: <laughs> i love the ground the ground is nice
2: <laughs> do you have a favorite font to type in
0: uh times new roman
1: what's your favorite small owned restaurant
0: um Let's see. So the, the angry trout in Minnesota.
2: What's your favorite order when you go there?
0: Trout. <laughs> oh, they do. I mean, it's, oh, it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's delicious, delicious food.
2: Do you know if you're eating rainbow trout or river trout or what it is?
0: Um, I, I think it's typically rainbow trout.
2: Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen the like breeding things that they have and mm-hmm. the breeder fish that are like the size of, I swear, my entire forearm? They're so
0: big. So the, the DNR stocks uh, some of the, uh, the, you know, the lakes that in, around the state and they stock Weldon Springs and a neighbor, a couple of neighbors love to go fishing and he's given us, I bet, 20 trout this fall. <laughs> So they're really good. We grill them out, it's delicious. We
2: like to go in Iowa. They have like North Bear and South Bear and I forgot exactly where in Iowa it is, but we always go trout fishing and it's so fun. I, uh,
0: I think, well, so my, my son-in-law and, 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 and daughter, they uh, actually fly fish out in Montana. And so when we visited this last summer, when COVID cases were down, um, we, we went fishing and I, I caught a small trout on a flyer rod. That's fun.
3: Um, did you have a job in high school? And if so, or if you had multiple jobs in high school, what was your favorite one?
0: Um, I was a lifeguard at a, at a local country club. So I would do that over the summers, and uh, I I enjoyed that. I would also have, when no one was around, I had binoculars and I would scan for
3: birds.
0: (laughs) What else?
2: If you couldn't have the current profession that you do and you couldn't do anything related to birds, what would be your job?
0: Actually, I love live music, although I don't play any instrument. Actually, I mean, I grew up listening to classic rock. I like indie rock. I like bluegrass music. I like Americana music. I love live shows that, mm. yeah, there's, there's it, it's, uh, it's, it's almost a religious experience to, <laughs> to go to, uh, to live shows. So, if I hadn't followed this career trajectory, I would have perhaps been in a band.
2: We want to give a huge thank you to Katie Vogler, Saylor Williams, and Hannah Johnson for hosting this episode. A thank you to Dr. Harper for sitting down and talking to us and answering all of our interesting questions. And thank you to Katie for editing this episode. We hope to see you soon.